Father, as we have sung, as your word proclaims and has been manifest in the hearts of every true believer in this place, we declare that union with Christ is our hope that because we are one with him, that we have been restored to relationship with our Father God. Lord, that relationship broken in sin has been resurrected and restored by the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. One with Him, one with Christ our Lord, we cannot die. We have eternal life because He has saved us. Now His righteousness is our own and His saving work has been applied to our lives and His resurrection is ours as well. And we look forward to the day of reunion, Lord, and glory eternal. Father, we have promises and assurance of these very things in your holy scriptures. And while every other form of statement and proclamation, idea, philosophy, every other proposition withers and fades with the flower and grass, your word never returns void and only proves itself true over and over in spite of the rebels who oppose it and in spite of history, which only confirms it, showing that you are the author and finisher of all things, the maker, creator, sustainer, providential director of this entire universe. We acknowledge your sovereignty and your glory and your power to save this day. And we choose to submit our souls to the authority of the word of God, rightly proclaimed and divided. So as we set our attention upon what you have spoken, I pray that you would give us hearts of humility and obedience. And we would bow before the authority of Christ, proclaimed through his instructions this day, that as his word goes forth, it would equip, encourage the church to walk in her sanctification ever more so, and that it would call the lost to repentance and faith to turn from sin and turn to Christ alone, who is the Savior of body and soul forevermore. It is the holy name of Jesus that we exalt and the holy name of Jesus in which we pray. It's the holy name of Jesus. We go forth from this place to advance the cause of his glory, his name, his kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Our worship time today, I trust, has set the tone of reverence and joy and weighty consideration of the holiness of our God. And I pray that the proclamation of his word would only encourage, enhance, and strengthen this as well. It is our great privilege and honor in a unified way to set our attention upon the scriptures this day. And today we continue to do so following the arc of God's work in history in the book of Genesis Opening chapter 39, which picks up on the story of Joseph and his plight in Egypt, having been purchased by Potiphar as a slave, and the circumstances that ensue. So turn there with me in a moment. Let's read the word together or stand to hear it. That's Genesis 39. The title of this morning's message is Joseph's Troubles, adding to our kind of series within a series of trouble that has followed the covenant family. We've covered Jacob's troubles, we've covered Judah's troubles, and now we turn to some afflictions, difficulties, trials, tests, circumstances that followed Joseph in his early years in Egypt. Joseph had trouble indeed. There was purpose in his afflictions, however, and today we see that in our chapter as well, especially with the benefit of the full account, some corroborating texts, 
and the bigger picture of God's plan and purposes through His covenant Son. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to identify God's sovereignty in suffering illustrated in the life and calling of Joseph. Sovereignty and suffering illustrated in the life and calling of Joseph. So with your heart open to receive the Word of God and your Bible as well and as you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word today out of reverence? Listen as God's Word is proclaimed in our hearing today. This is Genesis 39, the chapter, verses 1 through 23. Here is the Holy Word of God. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. <clears throat> 6b. Now Joseph was a handsome was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. 11, but one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I heard that I lifted up my voice, as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Verse 16, Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, this, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let us consider Genesis 39 in light of two major takeaways, if you will. 
The first is Joseph as an example to all believers. And the second is Joseph as a type or a model or a sort of echo or prefiguring of Christ. So again, two takeaways, largely speaking, from Genesis 39. Number one, Joseph as an example to other believers. And number two, Joseph as a picture of Christ. Today, my message will focus within those two categories. There are other passages of Scripture that give us a bit of context to help us understand Genesis 39 as well. So I will turn you to one primary one in Psalm 105 in just a moment, so if you want to turn there. Psalm 105 is one of those summary uh, historical psalms, and it covers in a few verses major lessons, the sovereignty of God in the life of Joseph. Before we turn there, John 16, 33, Jesus is encouraging his disciples and he says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word of Jesus Christ provides for us comfort and assurance that in spite of tribulation, our Lord and Savior, our sovereign Messiah, our King of Kings, has defeated the world already. His resurrection has proved it. His word proved it. This is what Joseph stood upon in faith, and it's the same ground that we stand upon in faith in our own trials. In the world we will have tribulation, but take heart, our Lord Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Psalm 105 Note verses 16 through 23 with respect to the account of Joseph. Here we read, When he summoned a famine on the land, speaking of the Lord, and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Get this picture in verse 18. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. 19. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house, the ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. Uh, 16 through 19, that first half of that section primarily, corresponds to our chapter today, Genesis 39. It's that passage where the psalmist says, clapped in irons on ankles and neck, Joseph was hauled away as a slave for Potiphar's household. Nevertheless, the Lord had purposes in this to save the covenant family and also, did you notice, to test Joseph. I submit that Genesis 39 is a record of the testing of Joseph. Testing, according to Scripture, is more than just, uh, well, let's see if you have it or see if you don't type of you know, analysis. It's a kind of tempering. It's a proactive thing. That is, God puts us through tests in order to strengthen, encourage, equip, prepare, and temper like metal heated to accomplish a particular task. A metal is inferior before it's tempered. It's soft, brittle, doesn't hold an edge. But when it's sent through the fires of affliction, so to speak, comes out the other end, and when done correctly, the molecular structure of that metal is transformed by the afflicting furnace, if you will, that crucible, and it's then appropriately shaped and formed and remade, and the molecular structure reconfigured to the task to remain sharp. And this is also an analogy that helps us understand the purpose of trials, afflictions, and testing that God puts his people through. And God was doing this with Joseph. 
Psalm 105 summarizes the anointing of Joseph and the purposes of God in his trials and affliction. God had prescribed a testing period for his servant before the words of prophecy were fulfilled. While the psalmist had the benefit of Joseph's full story arc in that passage we just read to understand the plan of God for his servant Joseph, Joseph himself had no such advantage. In other words, Joseph did not know what the next chapter of his life held other than a prophecy of a couple of dreams where he will ascend to rule. The rest of his faith or the rest of his courage must be taken on faith. Faith in what? Faith in God's word. So what provided Joseph the reassurance of faith necessary to sustain him through such rigorous trials that we've read in this chapter? It was the word of God by way of promise from Yahweh himself. Divine revelation by way of dream. God had revealed to Joseph that he would exalt him to rule. As in chapter 37, 5 through 9, and kids, you remember the two dreams, don't you? The first, the sun, moon, and stars, or that's the second. The first is the sheaves of grain bow before Joseph, and then the second, the sun, moon, and stars as well. This is what Joseph had to reassure him in the throes of his trial. The word of God, divine revelation by dream, that he would one day ascend to rule. In particular, there's a detail of that sheaf uh, vision that may go unnoticed, but makes more sense in light of today's passage. His sheaf stands up, that is, his sheaf arises, as we recall, and there is an arising of Joseph. There is a sort of messianic ascension that comes to characterize his calling, his life, and legacy. But in order for something to arise from the low state of humiliation, it must first fall, so to speak, or first be brought low. And so we read in our passage the account of Joseph's humiliation. However, we know from the rest of the account that he will ascend from the state of condescension or humiliation, if you will, to rule. And there are purposes in this to save God's people. <clears throat> Joseph's calling to, or as Joseph clung to this promise, he would realize in the due course that the pathway to the throne of Egypt would prepare him to literally save his people from famine. Think of another example in biblical history, Esther, to come. God's purposes in raising up his servant, in her case, as is well stated, for such a time as that, was not to glorify Esther, not to glorify Joseph. God does not exalt his people to glorify themselves but instead to glorify him, giving us the privilege, giving Joseph and Esther, and insofar as we carry the message as ambassadors of Jesus Christ of the gospel, giving us the privilege to be instruments of his saving grace. This is what Joseph was being prepared for. However, how difficult it must have been during these troubles that were nevertheless preparing him for this very thing. This chapter repeatedly emphasizes this fact. In light of these troubles, the Lord was with Joseph. No, no doubt Joseph need, needed to be reminded of that, just as we, the reader, are reminded three times in this passage. In spite of the affliction, nevertheless, the Lord has not left his son, has not forsaken him. How hard, or despite these circumstances, uh, this would be difficult to believe, I'm sure. These years of Joseph's life, it would be difficult to maintain the confidence that the author of Psalm 119 had in verse 46 when he says, I will speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. Joseph began to speak of his testimonies before kings, namely Potiphar, a high official 
in, in Pharaoh's court, but it appeared that he was put to shame, falsely accused of attempted rape and then sent incarceration into prison. It'd be hard to believe this, especially after that initial glimpse of hope and then this catastrophic condemnation. The account of Joseph mirrors the calling of believers today. This would be his lesson, or this would be his life by example. Saints, we also are called to endure our own trials by faith, knowing the word and promises of God among these words and promises that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ, Ephesians 2.6. Because Christ himself was raised from the dead, the Joseph to come, if you will, and seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, far above every name that is named, Ephesians 1.20-21, we have this assurance for those in Christ. We partake in the messianic ascension of Jesus Christ, prefigured in the calling of Joseph and unfolding in his experience in Genesis 39. So let us glean encouragement for our own commitment to Christ. and Let us also look to Christ through the story of Joseph. So let me give you a heading. The heading is this. Genesis 39 features Joseph's faithfulness in spite of four trials. Number one, the trial of success. Number two, the trial of temptation. Number three, the trial of betrayal. And number four, the trial of imprisonment or incarceration. Genesis 39 features Joseph's faithfulness in spite of success. That might be surprising at first, right? Well, success, it's easy to be faithful when you're successful. Oh, don't be so sure. I submit to you that the trial of success may be the most difficult of all because it's the most deceptive. When things are going well, it's easy to lose. It's not, is this not the testimony of God's people? When things were going well, they lost sight of their dependency on their Lord. Even Paul in the New Testament says, give me just the right amount of affliction so I don't forget you. He recognizes that the purpose of difficulties and sorrows to keep him in close communion, connection, and dependency in his consciousness and his prayer life and his acknowledgement in the reality of the situation, he understands that God prescribes a certain amount of affliction to do just that. So after asking for the thorn in his flesh to be removed, if God should leave it there, Paul was resolved that there was a purpose in this. It was an affliction to remind him that all of his great learning, his otherwise successes, do not justify him, do not give him any merit before the Lord. Paul, like we, need, like we do, need to be reminded that we are the greatest of sinners, were but for the grace of God. And so the trial of success is a difficult one. And this is important for us in the pampered, relatively speaking, historically and even internationally easy Western lifestyle. A lot of times it's the comfort of our lives that is our greatest enemy, if we're not careful. A lot of times it's the, it's the relative success and ease that we enjoy that can cause us to be distracted. 39.1, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain's guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Why was Joseph successful? Well, the temptation of success is to believe that there's something important or powerful, profound about me that has led me to this kind of success. But the word was clear, as was the testimony of Joseph. The reason I am enjoying any favor in my master's house is not because I am a good person, but because the Lord is with me. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Isn't this interesting? What we see here in this 
acknowledgement in Scripture that the Lord was with Joseph, and thus that was his key to success, was a fulfillment of a promise that was not exclusively given to Joseph, but was given to him and a long line of the promises of God by the patriarchs that we've come to call the Emmanuel Principle. I will be with you, God had already promised to his father Jacob a couple of times. You can look back at these passages in 28.15 and 31.3 and even summary language in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's great sermon, verse 9, and you find that the Lord was with the patriarchs, his people, his covenant family, his called at ones. And of course, this Emmanuel principle has taken its full fruition, it's come to fruition and fulfillment in our lives as believers. Of course, Jesus, one of his glorious names is Emmanuel, which means what, kids? What does Emmanuel mean? That's correct. God with us. Jesus Christ is, in fact, God with us. That is to say that in his work of redemption and in his abiding Holy Spirit and in his transforming work, regenerating the soul and causing you and I, if you know him, to be born again, he is with us. He is the reason that we are victorious to any degree, that any prayer is answered, that we enjoy any of the blessings of this life, that we have any uh, providential care that watches over us because the Lord is with us. And because the Lord is with us, we are successful. Not successful as the world defines it, ultimately speaking. Provisionally, yes, to do His will, but ultimately so, riches and prosperity beyond imagination, bringing us to heaven eternal. Why? Because we are great? Have any merit of our own? No, but because the Lord, through Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, is with us. So realizing for Joseph and us, that this, the Emmanuel, is the ultimate cause of any success, that is the key to remaining faithful in good times. So the trial of success can be weathered when you realize it is only by the grace of God. Secondly, there was a patriarchal promise that was being fulfilled, not just that God would be with uh, Joseph, but also that the legacy of Abraham would have an effect on kings. You see, this is starting to come to pass. His master, Joseph's master, saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So what does he do? He defers more and more responsibility to Joseph until Joseph has, com has the complete trust of Potiphar. And this is a rich, wealthy, prominent man. If Joseph were to undercut his master in any kind of way, it would grossly humiliate him before the most important people of Egypt. There had to be an absolute implicit trust in this servant master relationship in order for Potiphar not to be proven the fool. Uh, hence the consequences of the lie his wife told later. But in the meantime, we see that there was promises being fulfilled in the work and the influence of Joseph. It wasn't because Joseph was awesome. He later would tell the king, uh, Pharaoh himself, the reason I can interpret these dreams is God gave them to me. I'm not a particular gifted mystic in and of myself. I'm not the greatest of the superstitious wise men in your realm. No, Yahweh has spoken to me. It is he who holds the secrets of the human heart. It is he who balances all of the variables in the universe. It is he who has made you and created you and sustains you and gives you breath in your lungs. It is he that knows the human consciousness and the human heart right down to the meaning of a particular revelatory dream. And so as Joseph begins to influence kings, he realizes that this is the result of God's word spoken generations prior, that kings and people in authority would be influenced by the household of Abraham. So this is the keys to Joseph's success. Again, nothing he could boast of, but that which God, by his grace, was accomplishing through him. 
Chapter 12, 3, 18 and 18, these are in your notes if you have a copy, 21, 17, 30, 27. All of these were promises listed, documented in Scripture of the international influence and blessing that the family of Abraham would have on the world. And now Joseph was walking in fulfillment of these texts. Now, there was an, in the success of Joseph, he also recognized, we recognized from the Scriptures that there was an evangelical purpose in this. In other words, God was not exalting Joseph, as we said in the introduction, for his own sake, but he was exalting Joseph for the name and the glory of Yahweh. So what does Potiphar recognize that's special in Joseph? His master saw him, saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Why do you suppose that that was Potiphar's understanding of the success the administrative ability, the good character and integrity of his slave he bought from the Ishmaelites. I'll tell you, it is because I guarantee Joseph, whenever a compliment was directed his way, would say, I am only following the law of Yahweh, my God. I only have this gift of administration because of Yahweh, my God. And we know this because this was the confession, the consistent confession of Joseph later when he was lauded for interpreting dreams. Now, I, won't know, I don't know this of myself. This is Yahweh. And so this testimony of Joseph to the superior law of God lived out in principle as he sought to be a good steward of his master's estate served to proclaim the gospel, if you will, in this early form to Potiphar. And the name of Yahweh began to be confessed and glorified among kings. Now, this would be a calling that would be repeated by Esther, as I said before, but also think of Daniel and his three friends. They would look to the story of Joseph, would they not, for encouragement and inspiration in their own calling to testify to Yahweh as one unlikely, isolated individual, you know, in this intimidating circumstance of exile and empiricism as they were brought out of their familiar surroundings, culture, and tradition to Babylon. And when they got there, what did they do? They stood upon the word of God, and followed the example of Joseph. And they testified to the glory of Yahweh and prayed that he would grant them grace to interpret the dreams of the king and so forth. And the name of the Lord was thus advanced among the pagans. These days we live in a land that has largely forgotten the Lord. However, there are small ways uh, and, and big ways if you look at it by the grace of God that we can testify to this unbelieving culture to the degree that there's any order in your home, any consistency and joy in your marriage, any enduring relationships in your life. And people might ask you about that or, or you know, inquire, what is your secret? That's an opportunity to testify. It is the word, the grace, the law, and the sovereign hand, the steadfast love, the Emmanuel abiding uh, salvation of the Lord that has given you anything that testifies to him in your own life. How about reassurance, security, however bad? Everyone is constantly fretting about how bad the economy might get, world circumstances, the threat of nuclear war. As you interact with people who are worried, you know, that their very life and existence, an existential crisis for the West, whether by global warming or nuclear bomb, it's just right around the corner, it's a hair trigger away. And they see that you're unrattled by the news, I could ask for you perhaps a reason for the peace within you. And what might you respond? What ought you respond? Well, the grace of God. 
I know that I serve a risen and ascended Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father, is reducing all his enemies to his footstool, and has defeated death in the grave. There's no enemies left to conquer my Lord. I have been risen within, of course you can say it, and maybe less theologically charged language, and a little simpler way. However, the principle stands. To the degree that you have peace, that passes understanding, is because the Lord is with you. And so our success, as it were, even our frame of mind and our stability of soul serves an evangelical purpose to proclaim to a pagan world that Jesus is Lord. So in the big picture that Psalm 105 helps us recognize, this is the sovereign providence of God hard at work in the testimony of Joseph. The experience of Joseph was gleaning, or or was... uh, or uh, another way to look at this is that the experience of Joseph in interacting with this high-profile Egyptian officer was not only an opportunity for him to testify to the unbeliever of the sovereignty of Yahweh, but it was also preparing him in the providence of God for his calling later. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but it occurred to me this week that as this official of the armed forces, as it were, of, of Pharaoh... We see that Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh as a captain of the guard. No doubt he would be closely and intimately involved with the policy and politics, the inner working, and the elite ruler and leadership, you know, rulership or whatever, the leadership of Egypt at the time. So as Joseph took over and managed more and more of Potiphar's affairs, he became well-versed, presumably, in the political inner workings and, the, and all of the uh, you know, administration of the, this great empire at the time. And when he was thrown in prison, your first thought would be, well, all that is for naught. No, not so fast. The very things that Joseph was gleaning by experience in Potiphar's household, by the sovereign and providential hand of God, would serve him later as he assumed second in command under Pharaoh to spare the world from famine. So these are the things that God is doing behind the scenes that Joseph is just walking by faith through. Unbeknownst to him, in large part, I'm sure, But nevertheless, sufficiently trusting the word of God given to him, he is walking in his success in a way that is faithful to the Lord, passing the first trial. Joseph also passes the second trial, as it were. Genesis 39 features Joseph's faithfulness despite temptation. A turn in the narrative is dramatically indicated in the second half of verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It's kind of rare that we get a, you know, an analysis of somebody's good looks in Scripture. Every once in a while, you see it featured. And here, we come to find out the reason why. He was very attractive to Potiphar's wife, and her wayward heart sought to commit adultery with him. Verse 7, After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. This is a temptation, to be sure. You know, one way to illustrate God's grace in guiding Joseph through this potential pitfall is to contrast it with the story of Judah in the passage or the chapter before. Judah, no such faithfulness and no such conviction. 38.1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside that language is looking for trouble language, as we've identified to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And of course, he takes a wife from the Canaanites, the pagan unbelieving peoples. One thing leads to another, and pretty soon Judah's house is collapsing in this tidal wave of dysfunction that ends with him 
committing incest, deceived by his daughter-in-law who becomes pregnant with twins. This is the kind of fallout from adultery, immorality, and that kind of sexual sin. Joseph faced the temptation of this very thing, and the apparent you know, lack of culpability was much higher. In other words, Joseph was all alone, away from his family. People assumed that he was dead. He could, quote-unquote, the devil would speak in your ear, get away with this. Because who would know? After all, shouldn't, you know, it would be better for me, it would seem in the short term, to succumb to the desires of my master's wife, especially if he realized that if he did not, she might frame him, it would cast him into prison. However, what gave Joseph the grace to weather this trial, this temptation trial that would be so pronounced, and to act in contrast to his brother Judah or his brother Reuben, who took one of his father's concubines, or Esau, who took wives from the Canaanites, or Solomon, who married so many from among the pagan peoples, or Samson, who was distracted by the beauty of the Philistines. Well, it was his fear of the Lord. And we mentioned this last time, that if you want a people's identity to fall apart, if you want a society to unravel, Two things are featured in chapter 38 that attack a nation of people right at its core. That would be lack of the fear of God, and the second would be lack of faithfulness in marriage. Two very important relationships, absolutely fundamental to a people, a relationship with the Lord. When no one else is watching, do they fear Him? Do they know and live in the sight of the Lord? And are they conscious and obedient, recognizing His sovereign eyes, His uh, omniscience over them. And secondly, does that translate into faithfulness in marriage? Now for Joseph, a convicted man following the law of God, he refused to commit adultery and remain faithful not only to his future wife, but also faithful to Potiphar's marriage as well. And it would seem that this earned him no favors, but the scriptures continue to say, in spite of the trial and affliction, the Lord remained with Joseph. It takes a step of faith. Sometimes doing the right thing in the short term does not feel like it's rewarded. It nevertheless remains the right thing to do. And we need to look beyond the short-term calculation to the riches and rewards and the consequences of eternity in order to navigate and negotiate the temptations in between now and then. This is the lesson of Joseph's life. So here, let me just say one more thing along these lines by way of illustration. Have you ever heard that if people want to solve a crime, they look for three major things? Means, motive, and opportunity, right? If you recall that, means, motive, and opportunity. I suggest to you that in our sin, we're motives walking around just looking for means and opportunity. And when the test comes of temptation, you know, the motives of the heart are revealed. Well, this is just a classic case of if Joseph had a motive to commit sin, the means and opportunity were provided to him on a silver platter. But the means and motive, or the means and opportunity provided for Joseph revealed the motives of his heart. In this instance, he remained faithful to Yahweh and fearing him and keeping his law. And thus, under this temptation and in this trial, he chose to stand even with short-term negative consequences on the Word of God. Big picture, Psalm 105, 16, 23. 
we realize that these trials, according to the scriptures, are divinely prescribed to temper and test Joseph, as we've said before, for God's saving purposes. And as Joseph is a good example, we also look to Jesus and see him reflected in Joseph's character. You could say it this way, Joseph endured the sufferings necessary for the saving of God's covenant people. It was necessary for Joseph to go through these sufferings in the sovereignty of God in order to be situated and prepared to save God's people. And in this sense, Joseph is a type of Christ. Jesus himself endured temptation and was without sin. Jesus, in his humiliation and condescension, took on the burden of our sin and temptation and the judgment our sin deserved, remained without sin, and as a result was exalted to the right hand of the Father forever to receive all the kingdoms of the earth as his inheritance. But in the short term, it required his own death on Calvary. So Joseph is a picture of this. And as we look to his story, we look beyond and see Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, what do we see? We, in, we see the covenant son enduring the sufferings necessary for the saving of God's covenant people. We look beyond Joseph, we see Jesus enduring the sufferings necessary for the saving of God's covenant people. We'll close in a little bit with Hebrews chapter 4 that makes that plain. Suffice it to say, Genesis 39, as an echo of Christ to come, prefiguring his faithfulness, demonstrates faithfulness, Joseph does despite success, temptation. Number three, betrayal. Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, verse 14, she initiates this plan of action. So kids, I have a question for you. We haven't done this for a while, but let's do a 10 commandment test. So here's the question. Which one of the 10 commandments did Potiphar's wife break? Okay. Which one of the Ten Commandments did Potiphar's wife break in this instance? Let me read you answer that question. Hold your answer just a moment. She called to the men. She said, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So which of the Ten Commandments did Potiphar's wife break? How she not commit adultery? She broke that in her heart. And then there's a second commandment as well. Say again. Yes, very good. Thou shalt not lie, or more precisely, thou shalt not bear false witness. That is correct. So you see here, even before the Ten Commandments were given on tablets of stone, they were nevertheless ever present in the Word of God by implication and in written on the hearts of men. And among these Ten Commandments, of course, were two that are featured in this story. Thou shalt not commit adultery is the law of God. It was affirmed with conviction by Joseph. But secondly, there was another law that Potiphar's wife transgressed, this princess of Ra, if you will. She's an unbelieving pagan. She worships Ra, we presume. Her uh, husband's name means the giver, uh, or one given by Ra, the sun god, the false idol. So this princess of Ra and her pagan rebellion, what does she do? She breaks another of God's great commandments commits false witness. That is, she tells a lie about Joseph to make herself look good and him look bad, and in her resentment and anger to send him to prison for something he did not do. This is the test of betrayal. 
we can read kind of a logical progression, the steps that this woman took and kind of understand the enemy. First, she made an appeal to the populace, if you will. She called to the men of the household and said to them. So she's going to get a majority to agree with her. If she could convince the people around her that her opinion is correct, then she feels she'll be on better standing. And isn't it just the sin of man ever since? The promise of Satan in the garden or the rebellion of Babel or the appeal to democracy today? If we can convince the majority of our neighbors that we agree with the overriding opinion of those around me, then I can justify my sin. Underneath this woman's attempts to justify herself and condemn Joseph is this appeal not to the law of God, but in her deception to the agreement of the household to condemn this man. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Second thing she did, she brought up a difference in ethnicity and, and uh, people. She invoked class animosity to create a rift against Joseph and them. This is a Hebrew, somebody of a different people. What makes him think he's better than us? He's here to make fun of us. Have you ever been out preaching the gospel? This happened to us, a few of us, you know, just on, two Saturdays ago. Who are you to judge? You know, going and giving the message that we are all sinners and transgress God's holy law. We stand in, we stand uh, guilty and, and deserving of judgment until and unless we repent. Oh, who are you? Holier than thou. Well, what makes you, gives you the right to say, oh, you, Mr. Perfect, you're so arrogant. God has sent a Hebrew to mock us. And so this woman appeals to this kind of class conflict and war, uh, creating this kind of us versus them, exploiting cultural and ethnic differences to produce animosity in the household and to mischaracterize Joseph and throw dust in the air to try to cover herself and convict this innocent man. Then we already covered false witness. This is a command that was broken. Then finally, in a sort of interesting parallel, she uses once again garments, clothing, to deceive. And she laid up his garment, verse 16, by her until his master came home. And she uh, and told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. So there's sort of implicit uh, condemnation or putting on him, her husband, the fault of bringing him there. You know, you brought this Hebrew, you should have known better. Now look what's happened. I hold up his garment as proof that he tried to violate me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice, she says, verse 18, and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So now it's interesting. This is the second time that Joseph's clothing has been used uh, against him. And in the first case, it was used to deceive his father covered in blood that an animal had eaten him. There again, violating the commandment, his brothers did, thou shalt not bear false witness. And now his garment is taken. Remember, that robe was one of many colors. And we saw in that act a sort of besmirching or a reproach of royalty. Joseph had a calling to rule. His brothers despised that calling. And desecrating that robe with the blood of an animal no doubt gave them a sort of sick pleasure that we no longer have to be reminded of the superiority of the favor of Joseph and their envy, their jealousy, and their rebellion. They desecrated his robe. But once again, clothing in Scripture, by the way, 
It speaks to identity and holiness. The Lord clothes us with new robes. He takes the dirty stained robes of sinfulness and exchanges them right from the beginning. There's this redemptive picture language where the fig leaves are own justification. In the case of Adam and Eve are replaced with a sacrificial symbolic sacrifice of animal skins that the Lord provides. The clothing has some deep significance. And so in her attempt to to mischaracterize and to condemn an innocent man, she frames him by saying his clothing is proof of his guilt, when in fact Joseph was innocent in the matter. Now, clothing used to condemn or used against Joseph in this regard reminds us of our Lord. His clothing was taken and was, you know, gambled away as he, a condemned and humiliated, humiliated person, was sent to the cruel death of Roman execution on Calvary. And also, he was mocked and his royalty was spurned when they put you know, fake royal robes on him, so they thought of that purple and the crown of thorns and mocked him, hail king of the Jews. But in spite of these attempts by the unbeliever to assault us in our genuine holiness and identity, nevertheless, Joseph's heart was pure and God would vindicate him in the end. It's all a question of where our security and identity lies. Just like our clothing and our superficial identity cannot cover our sin, so in the end, the enemy cannot condemn us by framing us for sins that Christ has covered with his blood. Ultimately, the picture of this, the white robes of Jesus Christ, are our justification, ultimately speaking. And some of this language and interesting detail of garments and their role in sinfulness and so forth should remind us of that fact. Suffice it to say for now that Joseph was faithful despite betrayal, betrayal that involved these interesting details, these breaking of God's law and the framing of the elite and powerful to condemn him unjustly to his fourth trial, this passage, which is imprisonment or incarceration. And finally, in this passage, we see Genesis 39 features Joseph's faithfulness despite incarceration, imprisonment. Verse 19, as soon as his master, that would be Potiphar, heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Two things. At first, if you're Joseph, this would no doubt feel devastating. But Joseph, more aware of the cultural circumstances than us, no doubt probably realized something. Number one. If his master truly believed his wife's testimony, he no doubt would have him slaughtered on the spot. It was a highly shameful thing to endure, you know, that your slave would violate your wife and then you would uh, live with that. You know, a respectable, dignified, high-ranking official in Egypt, if he truly believed that, would only do one thing, and that would be to slaughter that slave. He had an absolute authority so far as the Egyptian assumptions were concerned in his rank and standing to do that. He did not. This would encourage Joseph what? The Lord was still with him. This would encourage him too when he went into the... This was probably less likely for him to realize right away, but he was thrown into a prison with others of the king's officials. This is interesting. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. In God's providential circumstances, this was a setup for him to be eventually second in command. 
And that connection, you know, uh, knowing somebody from the courts of Pharaoh himself who had been sent to prison, you know, i.e., you remember the baker and the cupbearer and so forth, would eventually pave the way in God's plan for Joseph to interpret the king's dream and then to take charge and use those gifts that he had honed of administrative stewardship and faithfulness in all of the land. So we see already here shades of God's uh, purposes, even though they would be difficult under the circumstances, no doubt. Nevertheless, verse 21 reaffirms, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And isn't it interesting, Joseph ends up having the same kind of influence, exercising the same kind of faithfulness in prison as he did in Potiphar's house. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he, Joseph, was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. There it is, the third mention of Yahweh blessing his favor upon the Lord. Harder to believe in prison, but even there, the faith of Joseph was evident in that he acted according to God's uh, steadfast love and the confidence that the Lord had ordered his footsteps, even though he was unjustly condemned. And so he began to apply the same principles he did when he was in the confines of Potiphar's household. And pretty soon, by the wisdom of God, he was running the place. What does this illustrate to us? Well, by way of example, the heart of Psalm 119 is illustrated here. The word of God is sufficient for every circumstance. Whether you are in prison or ruling a country, the word of God will scale to every demand and circumstance. It is completely applicable across all human conditions, across all states of affairs. And in spite of what the rebel would tell you, this is something unique to an agrarian society. We've moved far beyond, and it's nothing but a bunch of bigoted presuppositions by a Bronze Age goat-herding people. All of that is complete baloney. The Word of God absolutely survives every single test. It survives the test of Potiphar's household, the test of prison, and the test of ruling the nation of Egypt. And if it wasn't for God's word and its sufficiency applying in all these cases, the Messiah would not have been born. The covenant family would not have been spared of famine. And it was. And it was because the law of God is perfect, converting the soul, making wise the simple. And the testimonies of the Lord are sure. And, the, and we ought to consider them as the sweetest of honey, the most precious of gold, and the most enduring of all things. Why? Because they are universal virtues. You know, um, God's law and his word and wisdom. I often think of Joseph's story giving us this example. They are the ultimate survival resource. You know, we hear a lot about what, how can we be prepared in the event of an economic collapse and that kind of thing. This kind of talk only accelerates with the threat of, you know, calamity such as I mentioned before, nuclear war or otherwise, or economic fallout. Well, Joseph tells us that whether we have nothing and we're in prison or we have access to all the silos of Egypt, the word of God and his wisdom is our most precious and scalable resource. These are universal values. So Joseph illustrates the power and the sufficiency of God's word in his testimony. And all of this, let us close by reminding ourselves, was for a redemptive purpose. Joseph is not just a lesson in wisdom, and though he is that, he's far more. He's a picture of God's sovereignty and direction to preserve his covenant people. 
There is a message throughout the course of Joseph's life which we have been proclaiming as messianic ascension. Though he was brought low, and it's hard to imagine framed for attempted rape in a prison in a foreign land of a people not your own, all alone and falsely condemned, it's hard to imagine a status much lower than that, humanly speaking. But there was one, the son of Joseph, who stooped lower still, and that was Jesus Christ, the true Emmanuel. And in stooping low, in condescending to take upon the burden of redemption, the Lord tested, if you will, Jesus Christ for the purpose of raising him up to save his covenant people. Let's close by acknowledging this in Hebrews chapter 4. Again, Jesus was without sin. And the testing, so to speak, or the trials that Jesus faced were not to prepare him and to condition him in the same way Joseph was prepared through trials, Joseph a sinner. Instead, they were to fulfill all of God's conditions for the salvation of man. Jesus had to be tested and tempted and without sin. He had to take upon the burden of the covenant of works as it were and be faced with the probation or the testing and to pass with flying colors in his sinlessness in order, according to Paul, to be that federal head, that representative Savior. And this is what the book of Hebrews so gloriously proclaims of our Savior. We pick up on this in Hebrews 4, 15. We'll go to 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed, passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So pausing there, we, facing trials like Joseph, can hold fast our confession knowing that Jesus has gone before. What has he done for us? Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Our Emmanuel has survived the temptation. Therefore, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We continue verse 16 that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Just a glorious picture prefigured in the testimony of Joseph of what Jesus would be in fulfillment and perfection. Next chapter, a couple more verses, seven and following. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, that being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There was a purpose in the trials of Jesus, and just as we identified in provisional and, and symbolic uh, truth, Joseph enduring sufferings, ultimately that spoke of Jesus the true son of Abraham, the true son of Judah, if you will, to come. It was Jesus, ultimately speaking, who endured the sufferings unto death and even the wrath and judgment of God. He endured the sufferings necessary for the saving of God's covenant people. Joseph's testimony prepares us for Jesus to come who would fulfill this right down to what was necessary to atone for your sin and mine. What a glorious truth proclaimed through all of Scripture in so many awesome ways. Let us close in thankfulness to God for this. Lord, we thank you for the message of Scripture which proclaims to us the authority, glory, power, the steadfast love, atoning work, the sufficiency of the word of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We thank you that with perfection, without exception, 
He fulfilled the law and died in our place, the perfect substitute and sacrifice. And in taking on the sufferings that was necessary to secure for himself a people, he delivered us from the famine of hell. And in Jesus Christ, whose storehouses are filled with eternal life, we have abundant life eternal as he sits at the right hand of the Father, having been exalted, satisfying the terms of our own salvation and redemption. It's his name we glorify and praise, and I pray that we would see him all the more in light of the testimony and counsel of all of Scripture. If there are any lost in the hearing of this message, may the glories of Jesus Christ and the conviction of our own wickedness and sin drive those who have not repented yet to turn from evil and to turn to Jesus Christ, whose storehouses are sufficient to save them from the hell they deserve and to ransom them into eternal fellowship with God Almighty, our holy and awesome Lord. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.